Right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Mark. Glad you could all make it out on a freezing cold day like today. So, um, if you want to open your Bibles and turn to Luke 4, we're actually going to be going to one of my favorite passages in probably the whole New Testament today. We're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. So Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. And if you could all stand when you get there, we'll read it out together. Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to my will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands lest, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for the chance to gather here every Sunday, Lord, to, uh, to learn a little bit more about who you are, Father, to learn more about you from your word, Lord. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, and help us to understand what it is that you want us to learn from this passage here, Father. Lord, I pray that the things that we learn here today may not just stay here today, Lord, but that we might take them out, apply them to our own lives, and whatever fashion that may be, whatever our lives are like, Lord, but help us to apply the things we learn here today to our lives to better your kingdom, Lord. And we thank you and we pray all this in your name, Father. Amen. Please be seated. Alrighty. Well, Jesus here in chapter 4 is pretty much just starting his ministry. And it's kind of interesting... Can everyone hear me? We're all good? It's kind of interesting that he starts it out this way. Because if you look back at chapter 3, it actually could have started very differently. So turn back a page with me, chapter 3. Now, this is the story of uh, Jesus' baptism. And I'm assuming we all know it pretty well. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But if you look at verse 7, it says that crowds came out to be baptized by him. So there's a lot of people here, right? And John is getting them all super excited about this coming Christ. So much so that in verse 16, if you take a look there, he has to tell the people that he himself isn't that Christ. Right? And then when Jesus does show up on scene, they see the people here see him get baptized, 
And in verses 21 and 22, it says that the heavens opened up, the Spirit fell on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying that he was the beloved Son. So after all that, it's really hard to imagine. It would have taken much more to convince these people that Jesus is that Christ. Because, I mean, they were already excited about Christ coming. And then when he came, there was a couple of supernatural events that happened that were directed at Jesus. And then a voice came from heaven saying that Jesus was the Son. So Jesus probably could have got a huge following right then and there if he really wanted to. But as we see in our text, chapter 4, that's not what happened. Jesus took off to the wilderness for a month and a half. It just, it seems like the most backwards thing he could have possibly done. It's like he's abandoning all these potential followers. It leaves you wondering why. But I am hoping that as we dive into our passage today, it'll shed a little bit of more light on that. So now back to our passage. Verse 2 says that Jesus was in the wilderness, or desert, if your translations say that, that's fine. And he was there a whole 40 days, and he didn't eat a thing during that time. Now that doesn't seem very fun on its own, but add to the fact that he was also being tempted by the devil for those 40 days, every single day, nonstop. I used to think, myself, that it was just these three temptations he faced. But if you really look closer at the text, it says for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So this, this was no vacation. This wasn't a sabbatical. This was a grueling 40 days. It was maybe the second hardest thing Jesus has ever had to face next to the cross. And Satan is taking every opportunity to try and break Jesus as well. He's constantly at him, trying to get Jesus to give in to all these temptations. And now regarding these 40 days worth of temptations, there's two important things I really don't want us to miss here. First off, Satan isn't making Jesus sin. All right? Not once is it noted that Satan made Jesus sin. All right? And that's because he can't. And thank goodness for that. Right? Job is another great example of someone who Satan wanted to sin, but never forced him to. And Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan didn't take that apple and shove it down their throats. He didn't force them to sin. They did it on their own account. That's what he does. He tempts people. Right, but making people sin is something he just can't do. He'll show you your options to sin, and he'll make it, all these options of his seem really, really good, make them seem really sweet, uh, seem like the better thing to do. But in the end, he can't make you sin. So that old saying, the devil made me do it, it's just not true. Right? So that's the first thing. And secondly, it says that Jesus was tempted. And yet, 1 Peter 2.22 says about Jesus that, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So Jesus was without sin on the one hand, but yet he was tempted. So that can only mean that temptation itself can't be sin. Now if you've never heard that before, write that down in the margin of your Bible. Highlight it. Uh, make a little spiky explosion bubble around it. Get a tattoo of it, whatever. This is really important, all right? Because this is a huge misunderstanding among so many Christians. And I myself have misunderstood this. For me, I found myself apologizing to God daily and for any and everything. 
my day-to-day -day life was super stressful. It was, it was almost like, I can't think of anything or else I'm going to sin. And it got so bad that for myself, I wondered whether or not I was even a Christian. But temptation isn't sin. And if you can accept that, you will save yourself hours of anxiety and self-loathing. Right, I think this may be the best passage in the whole Bible showing that temptation isn't sin. But just to add another one, James 1, 14 and 15, if you're writing notes, says that each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So you can see it right there in that one little sentence. It's after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Not before, not during, only after. They're two separate things. Temptation can lead to sin, no doubt. But that's it. It's not sin in and of itself. So back, back to our passage. Verse 2 says that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days. And understandably, he's super hungry at the end of them. I've heard that the body can survive about two months without food. And so Jesus is he's pushing that limit. He's getting up there. All right? So Satan decides to take advantage of this, and he tempts him. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So Satan is really tempting him on two fronts here. First, he's using Jesus' extreme hunger against him. Now, I don't, even, I don't need to tell you that that hunger bit alone would be super tempting, but he also adds in this little challenge. If you are the Son of God. He wants Jesus to prove that he's God's Son. He's asking for a miracle. Satan wants Jesus to change that rock into bread, start eating it, and say, See, Satan, I am the God. I am the Son. But Satan doesn't care about the bread itself. He's thinking on a much bigger scale. He's thinking about the principle of it all. What would it mean on a deeper level if Jesus made himself some bread? What Satan really wants is for Jesus to become self-serving, to act independently of God for his own benefit. And even if it's just this seemingly tiny little matter of bread, it's as if Satan is saying, God's clearly not taking care of you, Jesus. You're starving. You better save yourself here just this one time. And I mean, you can even prove your divinity by doing it. Now, from a human perspective, it seems pretty reasonable. And it would seem even more reasonable if you and I felt like we were starving to death and we're not thinking straight. And it's worth noting here that this is a real temptation. It's well within Jesus' ability to turn that rock into bread. Because the temptation is only really a temptation if the thing you're tempted with is an actual possibility. For example, um, none of us could be tempted to steal the moon. Right? It's outside our capabilities. We're not Gru from Despicable Me. All right? We're not capable of stealing the moon. But it is within our capabilities to steal from our next door neighbor if we wanted to. That's a real thing. All right? So what does Jesus say to Satan's temptation here? Verse 4. He says, man does not live on bread alone. Without hesitation or a second thought, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And I'd like you all to turn there with me. Because, and keep a finger there, because we're going to be coming back to this area a couple times. That's Deuteronomy 8.3.
It says, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man lives not on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This quote that Jesus made was originally meant for the Israelite people, just before they entered the Promised Land. And if you stop to think for a second, it's pretty easy to see how what Jesus is going through here really mirrors what the Israelites went through. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and they both faced hunger. For the Israelites, God wanted to know what was in their hearts. He wanted the Israelites to depend on him and to live on every word that comes from his mouth. But of course the Israelites had to be taught this. They didn't trust God to provide. They grumble against God, and actually back in Exodus 16.3, the people accuse God of planning to kill them. I'll just read it for you. Exodus 16.3, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. So they, they actually accuse God of planning to kill them all by starvation. It's kind of ridiculous. But Jesus, on the other hand, as he's going through the same intense hunger, he doesn't grumble at all against God. He also shows full well what's in his heart. But for him, as said, he shows that he lives on every word of God. The Spirit led him out here just as God led the Israelites out of Egypt. But unlike the Israelites, Jesus actually trusts God. Though it's in his power to turn that stone into bread, he's not going to succumb to that temptation and become independent of him. He's not going to become self-serving. Jesus himself says in John 6.38 that he's come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. So Jesus is fully dependent on the Father and trusts him enough to get him through this. So I imagine Satan's response being something like, oh, dang it, that didn't work. So he tries again in verse 5. Verse 5 says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Now we're not sure what this is, if it's a mountaintop or on top of a cloud, or we, we don't know what this is, but that's not really important. What's important is that Jesus is able to see all the powers and kingdoms of the entire world. And Satan tells him, I'll give them all to you, every single one, all their power, all their glory. And he can do this. When, he, when Satan says, it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will, he's not lying. Right? 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are the children of God, and this is key, and that the whole world is, control, is in the control of the evil one. So Satan's not lying here. The world is his, and he can do with it what he wants, and he can even give it away if that's his will. And the only thing he asks for in return is that Jesus worship him. Now that's tempting. If you or I could be king of the world, just think of all we can do. We could fight for equality, fight for peace, fight against starvation. But for Jesus, it would mean so much more. Because it would mean that Jesus would have us. We would all be in relationship with him. And so he wouldn't have to spend the next three years on earth going through all the hardships that we know he's going to be facing. Hardships like ridicule, abandonment, threats on his life. Hardships like, uh, like scourging and death on the cross. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus wouldn't have to die on the cross anymore if we were all his. The war of the flesh would be over. 
That's evidence. You know the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember what happened there? Luke 22, 42 says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet it's not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 44 says, Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus really did not want to go through with this whole cross business. And Satan is offering him an early way out. And all he's got to do is get on his knees and bow down to him. But what would that mean? The implications would be quite staggering, to say the least, because it would no longer be us being saved and cleansed from our sins, or or us being brought up to and meeting God's standards to spend eternity with Him. Kent Hughes, a professor of theology in the States, says that it would be a shallow, fleeting, political salvation, instead of a soul salvation, because there would be no atonement and our sin would not be dealt with. And I think that's true. Because it would mean Jesus, the Son of God, permanently, morally, lowering himself to our level. Jesus, as God the Son himself, would become sinful. And the Godhead itself would become corrupt. And if that were to happen, nothing could cleanse us or him of sin. In a real sense, Satan would have won. Even though Satan would have given up the whole earth, and all his control and all his power, he would have won. So what does Jesus say to this? Verse 8. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, again, quotes scripture, and he basically says, no way. He's not going to bow down to Satan. Even if it means he'll be killed by the Israelites in the end, that doesn't matter. Because it is far better to worship God as God and suffer than to worship an idol and get the easy way out. And this quote, it comes from roughly the same spot as the first one, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. So I'm going to flip back there. I'll read uh, verses 12 to 13 now for a bit of context. Deuteronomy 6, 12 to 13. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. The Israelites in the wilderness, they had to be warned not to serve other gods. And they needed this reminder because they were prone to toss God aside. If you remember the golden calves of Exodus 32, they had already gone after gods once, false gods. They had already abandoned him. And we know that they would again. They'd worship Baal, Molech, the queen of heaven, and who knows what else. The Israelites eventually went so far in their idol worship that they actually got exiled to Assyria and to Babylon. So again, the Israelites have failed God once already, and they would again, but Jesus hasn't. Jesus values his perfect relationship with God the Father more than he does saving his own skin. So Satan's failed twice here now to tempt Jesus, but he's got one more temptation. He's persistent. If anything, you've got to remember that. And this last temptation he gives is a little different than the first two. He's seen Jesus use scripture against him twice. So maybe he thinks to himself, you know what, maybe I'll give it a try. So verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here. And by the way, that's really high up. 
I've heard everything from 150 to 300 feet, depending on what you consider the top of the temple. But the point is, if you throw yourself down, you're not getting back up. You're splashed. All right? But Satan brings him up here, and he issues the same challenge that he did in that first temptation. If you are the Son of God. So again, Satan's trying to make Jesus prove his sonship. But as we'll see in the next couple of verses, this time, it's actually so that Jesus can prove God keeps his word. Verses 10 to 11. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The first two temptations tested Jesus and his character. But this one here is aimed at testing God through Jesus. It's as if Satan were to say, So Jesus, if you throw yourself down here, God says he's going to rescue you. But talk is cheap. I want to see proof that he's trustworthy. And if God says he'll do this for the average Joe, well then of course he'd do it for you if you're his son. And Satan didn't make these verses up. They come from Psalm 91. They actually exist. So now, like all the other temptations, on the surface, this one seems like a pretty good idea. If it were me in Jesus' shoes there, I'd think, you know, i got to jump. i got to protect God's integrity. But what does Jesus say? Well, big surprise, for the third time, he quotes another scripture. Verse 12. It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And once again, it's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. To flip back, if you wouldn't mind. Six sixteen says, "Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa." Well, now what happened at Massa? Well, it's the water from the rock story. In Exodus seventeen, the Israelites are thirsty from wandering the wilderness, and they grumble about it. And God eventually gives them their water. But this is what Moses has to say to them at the, end of, at the end of the whole incident. He called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? But Jesus, for his part, he's not going to follow their example. He's not going to test God because he knows better. And now, I think it's fair to say that Jesus has made it pretty clear that knowing your scripture help amen- helps immensely in fighting off temptation. If you know your scripture, you can know how to respond when temptations arise, any kind of temptation. Because it kept Jesus here from falling into, from falling into Satan's twisted scripture. Because what Satan failed to mention is that Psalm 91 is about a person who already trusts God will act in the event of something happening. This person isn't just willy-nilly throwing himself off every cliff he sees. That's not trust. That's manipulation. Because you're trying to back God into a corner. You're trying to force him to react. You're making a circumstance where God supposedly has to do something or he's going to face some consequences. That's manipulation. That's not trust. But that is the attitude that Satan is trying to make Jesus show God the Father. But Jesus knew what Psalm 91 was about. And he knew from Deuteronomy 6.16 not to test him, just trust him. And that kept him from falling into sin. So from verse 13, we can see now Satan's done. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
but we still haven't really understood now why all this happened in the first place. Why did Jesus go through this? Why suffer so greatly and in such a way that it mimicked the Israelites? Well, I think the answer lies most clearly, actually, in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to turn with me to Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, <coughs> sorry, not verses 14 to 18, where am I? Lost my place. I totally lost my place. Okay, sorry, verses 17 to 18. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then take a look at 4.15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet is without sin. So all of a sudden, Jesus has become relatable to the Israelites. But I'd say he's also become relatable to us. Nobody in this room can say that they have never idolized something in their life, be it money, power, recognition, beauty, whatever. Right? We've all put something ahead of God at one point in time or another. And nobody can say that they haven't grumbled at God or thought to test him. We've all been tempted, just as Jesus has. I mean, he was tempted in 40 days straight, for 40 days straight, and in every way, just as we are. Right? There's nothing you can say, you know, Jesus won't understand what I'm going through. Or Jesus wouldn't get it. Because he's gone through every temptation we face. And the only difference is that he came out blameless. Because he didn't come to earth in human form, but just walk around impervious to all the hardships we face. Because that's not really being human. And Jesus wouldn't be able to help us in our temptations if he hadn't gone through them too. So Jesus did this so he might develop the strongest possible relationships with us that he could. He left those people back with John the Baptist so he might come back relatable and develop an even better relationship with him. And he's also set the bar for us. He's proven that we can resist temptation. You and I. Because if Jesus, with all his godly powers handicapped, could face temptation like a human and not sin, then there's no reason why we can't do And he's even shown us how. By using scripture. By knowing your Bible through and through. Because this month and a half Jesus went through, it was hard. But it's done more for humanity than I think we realize. Jesus, God the Son, has become relatable. Because he's done, he's done it in such a way that hasn't diminished his rightful claim as God. And it's so hard to fully understand. So hard to wrap our minds around. But we all ought to be super grateful that he came and went through all this. I hope uh, it's made it a little understandable why I really like this passage. For me, I've kind of thought of this passage now as like the pinata of Scripture. It's full of goodies, full of good lessons. All right? And I think you can probably get a couple dozen 
But I selected just four that I think are really key. So lesson number one, Satan can't make us sin, though he can tempt us. But even temptation isn't sin until we actively engage in the sinful act. That's Luke 4.2 and James 1.14-15, for cross-references. And I'll say it again. Satan can't make us sin, though he can tempt us. But even temptation isn't sin until we actively engage in the sinful act. Luke 4.2 and James 1.14-15, for cross-references. Just because I look at my neighbor's car, I'm like, man, that's a really nice car. Wish I could drive one. That doesn't mean I've sinned. If I go ahead and I swipe his keys and I take it for a joyride, then I've done something wrong. Then I've sinned. But being tempted, that's normal. That's just a part of being in the flesh. That's part of the fallen world. Lesson number two. Memorization of scripture in its proper context is of tremendous value in withstanding, in withstanding Satan's temptations. And you can get cross-references from Luke 4, verses 4, 8, and 10 to 12. Memorization of Scripture in its proper context is of tremendous value in withstanding Satan's temptations. Luke 4, verses 4, 8, 10 and 12 for cross-references. Because Satan knew his scripture here. Satan knew Psalm 91. He used it against Jesus. But in its proper context, it doesn't support Satan's claims. And it's so easy to take a verse and just make it say what you want it to say. I know uh, back at Pine Ridge, Dan calls it popcorning verses. I don't know if that's the same term that uh, Dex uses here. But... Lesson three. Jesus voluntarily came to earth and suffered all things in order to create the deepest and strongest relationships with his followers possible. And that's what makes him relatable. Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, and Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and 4, 15, for cross-reference. That was a long one. I'll definitely read it a couple more times. Jesus voluntarily came to earth and suffered all things in order to create the deepest and strongest relationships with his followers possible. And that's what makes him relatable. Luke 4, 1 to 13, and Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and 4, 15. Once more? You need it once more time? Yeah? Okay. All right. Jesus voluntarily came to earth and suffered all things in order to create the deepest and strongest relationships with his followers possible. That's what makes him relatable. And cross-references, Luke 4, 1-13, Hebrews 2, it shouldn't be 14-18, Hebrews 2, 17-18, and 4-15. And the final lesson, where we fail and fall into sin, Jesus is triumphant. 
where we fail and fall into sin, Jesus is triumphant. Okay. I can't remember how many exactly people were in the desert, uh, the Israelites, I think it was 40,000. But there were a ton of people there, 40,000 people. And they never made it to the promised land. They failed. They fell into sin. They fell into temptations. But Jesus here, he's overcome. Where we fail and fall into sin, Jesus is triumphant. So I'm curious to see what uh, everyone is thinking. Hear what everyone is thinking. Any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns?